Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we are back from holiday. There wasn't actually a holiday, but we're back to talk about the creator. Gareth Edwards' new film is that Gareth Edwards? Edwards. Yes. Evans? Edwards. Gareth Edwards. Edwards. I had it right. Yes, Gareth Edwards' new sci-fi film is out. We've seen it. I'm excited to talk about it. We're also going to talk about After Sun, a 2022 feature that we missed here on this show. We don't normally miss bold cinema, but it's on Hulu. Very excited to talk about After Sun. Stick around for the review. We talk about the news, and the first thing, and also, like, Thing we're going to talk about halfway through the show, which is why I'm telling you about it now, is the, the strikes, the Hollywood strikes, the writer's strike, the actor's strike, SAG after WGA, the AMPTP. We got the details on all of it, uh, but there's a lot of news since we were off last week, so we're going to save it for our middle segment, The Death of Cinema. And before we get to any of that, we need to get to the news on the ground. And the first thing uh, this week, now that we're back, is Disney spending over $270 million to make the Marvels. This is uh, embarrassingly a retraction for Offscript Film Review because two weeks ago, I got on this very show and told you what everybody else thought on the internet, that the Marvels is the second cheapest movie Marvel's ever made. It was like $170 million or something, and it was like, oh yeah, that's, it was pretty low. that's not too bad. Boy, Nia DaCosta's really pulled out a, a, a budget winner here. I think that might be good stuff. Well, it turns out, just a few days after we recorded, like Always, when it comes to news like this, Forbes reports that, hey, surprise, those numbers are not actually correct. Uh, really, it's cost $270 million and is going to need to make a pretty penny at the box office to clear its costs. Uh, Andy, what do you think of the Marvels being the most expensive Marvel movie? <laughs> so it was interesting because I, I heard this number and I was like... It, to this 270 million, I was like, well, that can't be right. That obvious, or or I was like, that 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 has to include marketing because we had heard that 130 million dollar number. So you usually kind of double that uh, and said, okay, that that sounds about right for that that amount. And then it's like, oh no, that's the budget. And they did get like a 50 million dollars uh, subsidy from the UK government, bringing that down to 220. But still, almost 300 million dollars for this movie before marketing like it's gonna have to be a huge hit and it's a little on the short side for marvel it's only an hour and 45 minutes um so we're talking like two million dollars a minute on this show and we (laughs) we have not had a lot of faith in this this there has not been a lot of buzz uh it looks fine but you you don't make a billion dollars on fine. You you gotta really bring bring the heat to get bring audiences, and they're they're not gonna really have any competition. But I th- think also people are a little superheroed out. Superhero fatigue is definitely setting in right now, and uh, I think they're gonna have a hard time making back this uh, budget. Yeah, like on suit, so you can't you you're all absolutely right about superhero fatigue. On paper, this is not that crazy of a decision. It's definitely too much money for for what the movie is, I think. And I haven't seen it yet, but I just don't feel like people are that stoked on it because, like you said, superhero fatigue is a real problem. Uh, Captain Marvel made one point one billion dollars at the box office. One point one billion that movie made with a B. All right, so on paper, it doesn't look that crazy to give its sequel a lot of money, but. We're in a very different place, all right? Captain Marvel was the next immediate film after Infinity War, right? Maybe, or maybe Endgame? No, I think it, it was Infinity it was, War. It, it was right before one of them. Everybody Must've, was... Yeah. It was, it was the middle of, like, Avengers fever. Like, everybody was stoked on it. It was pre-pandemic. Pre-pandemic. Like, it was it was the golden age of superhero movies, and we're not necessarily in that now. It's not all bad. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy three made a killing. All right, like it's not to say it can't be done. And Nia DaCosta, who we loved uh, for Candyman in twenty twenty one, is not you know she's she's no slouch. But we've also like seen some kind of concerning reports about the movie, like her saying it's Kevin Feige's film, not hers. Uh, or this, you know, discrepancy where it's like, surprise, uh, the number everybody was reporting was wildly off and uh, nobody was coming forward and saying, no, no, this is how much it costs, but here's why we're excited about it. Like, it just, it just feels like maybe they're, you know, putting a, putting a, putting a ribbon on something that may not be as hot as it should be, you know? I Yes. And I did, I, I heard an explanation about this. Uh, part of the reason this budget was so high was uh, you know, movies take several years to make, and so this was greenlit back in 2021, and apparently that this is when everyone was spending because we were still kind of in the pandemic, 
uh, streaming w- was bigger than it is now. The streaming wars were at its height, and so everyone was was willing to write big checks for big films. Um, that's also why we got the two hundred thirty five million dollar uh, Secret Invasion uh, Marvel TV show this summer, and which is an outrageous amount for a TV show. But it was it was greenlit during this era of big spending. So now it seems ridiculous because all all the streamers are clamping down on budget on budgets. So it it seems like it doesn't make sense, but it did for 2021 when they were just spending as much as they could. So that's why this happened. Um and again, the success of the first Captain Marvel over a billion dollars, nothing to to shy away from. But again, completely different uh kind of environment in the the culture pre-pandemic. Marvel, the height of Marvel hype. I think this. I think this was the film, the last one before uh, Infinity War. Uh, uh you might be right. And so it was nothing but Marvel hype, and so it made sense to to greenlight an expensive sequel. Um, but things have changed a lot since then. Do you remember we're in July when the finale of Secret Invasion got a seven percent on Rotten Tomatoes? Boy, that was a great. Day. <laughs> it was a great day on Twitter. It was an amazing day on Twitter. Uh, All anyone well, did was clown that show. Dude, Disney is not immune to uh, budget constraints, right? Despite their uh, quite deep war chest. Amazon also has a lot of money, and it turns out they're looking to make some scratch too because they're planning commercial breaks for Prime Video. Surprise! All the streamers figured out that adding ads and making you watch them makes them more money than simply receiving a subscription fee. So Amazon, just like Netflix or Hulu or anybody else who's incorporating ads, uh, has decided that they are going to try to figure out a way to get a little bit more money out of you, the viewer, and your eyeballs and your buying habits. Andy, what do you know about this? Uh, you hate to see it because I think Amazon was one of the last holdouts um, to add, to add commercials, and they did have those uh, what they call fast channels, which are uh, free advertising uh, supported channels like freebie so you could watch some like better movies but there would be ads in them and now they're just gonna force the ads in into everything uh it it's a sad it's a sad time and uh but like i said it's what every kind of streamer is doing i and i think that's really my problem with it right like i don't want to watch ads consumers don't want to watch ads it's frustrating to me that we're being driven to a place where we're all just going to watch ads again but at the same time, I also understand it, right? Like nearly all of these streaming services are operating at a loss. Nearly every one of them is losing money consistently. All the venture capitalists who backed all this stuff half a decade ago are realizing that it's not really working out and they need to make money. So they're squeezing, right? They're upping prices and they're locking down password sharing. And now they're trying to figure out a way to get ads in front of you. And I guess I wouldn't mind so much if I didn't feel like it was coming at the expense of the non-ad free experience or the the ad free experience i guess is what i'm saying like because that's what i try to subscribe to and consistently my subscription costs just keep going up as these things get rolled in and it's like man this is lame like i (laughs) the the service was better two years ago than it is now like how is it getting worse and we're all paying for more that's what it feels like i mean on the consumer side to me yeah exactly it is it's getting worse you have to watch more ads and if you if you only subscribe to the ad tier of a service, like with Netflix, like I do, my cheap ass, um, you you don't actually, you can't access all of the Netflix content. Um, if you're on the ad supported tier, you have to be on like the standard or premium tier to get everything that Netflix offers. So that doesn't help either. Yeah, it's it's frustrating. And, and Netflix obviously is not uh, above reproach here. We've got another story just coming out today, uh, believe it or not, the day we're recording this show, uh, October 3rd. Uh, Netflix is planning another price hike as soon as the strike business is over, which like they didn't, they, they just hiked it not that long ago. So I think people are really surprised at this headline. Like, what do you mean you're going to up the price again? You know, but uh, Netflix is, you know, just like everybody else, they got to make money, I guess. And and hosting 3,000 titles in an online library isn't, isn't the way to do it, right? They got to do more. Well, and they're going after the ad supported, the cheap tier. Uh, that's what they're going to be raising prices on. So if, you, if you're on the premium tier, like Moneybags Lewis, then... <laughs> Then you, uh, your price is that you're talking about money bags. (laughs) That is, then, um, your your price probably isn't going to change. But if you're on the cheaper tier, 
uh, it's probably going to go up by a dollar or two. We, we don't know the exact amount yet, but this was, like I said, just reported today. Yeah, uh, it's not exciting. It's a rough time to be a stre- streaming fan, folks. But, you know, bear with us. We'll all get through it together. Uh, a bit of a lighter story, which I'm excited to talk about. From the uh, the, the awards category, something we don't often get to talk about on this show, uh, the Golden Globes are adding two new categories this year to their awards ceremony. Uh, blockbuster movies and stand-up comics, <laughs> which... I don't think is meant to be as funny as it is, but uh, boy, it's it's probably the funniest uh, Globes headline I've read in a hot minute. Uh, what do you know about this, Andy? Uh, so this is, uh, I think, a good thing and kind of a side eye thing. Uh, adding a category for stand up special, uh, I think, is a really good thing because stand up is its own kind of form of entertainment, and w- there's not really a good way to recognize that. So I think that that's a great step. Uh, the blockbuster category. This reminds me of the Academy Awards tried to do this a couple of years ago with their, uh, you know, Oscar for achievement in popular film, because they wanted a way a way to recognize, uh, high, you know, movies that make a ton of money, but while also recognizing high art art films as well. And so this is the Golden Globes attempting to do the same thing. Um, they're going about it probably a better way instead of you know saying it's it's a, the award for popular film. It's more money based um but it's still kind of the same thing because there's going to be the one who wins blockbuster movie and then the one who wins like you know best picture you know you'd think in like declining physical media sales over the years and the rise in streaming that like these companies wouldn't care so much about getting you know the stamp of approval from an award service on the front of their dvd right they shouldn't have to worry about being nominated for three oscars or having a you know a winner of two golden globes on the front of like some hot new musical because like it's probably going to netflix and that's not going to be on the thumbnail right who's going to notice but that seems to be the exact opposite of what's going on because people care a lot about winning this stuff and they should, right? Like it's, 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 it's an honor to be nominated. It's an honor to be awarded, but the golden globes like is in this funny space where they're like desperately trying to get people to watch in a time when like award ceremony and views are just continuing to tumble despite exciting events that may happen uh, at, at, at the ceremony, like uh, Will Smith and Chris Rock getting into it. But I think adding like box office achievements a laugh just because like, it's hard to deny you wouldn't just give it to the highest earner, right? Like that was the problem the Oscars had. People are like, okay, so just the movie that makes the most money gets that, right? Well, not necessarily, right? It's still got to be an exciting category. I think you're right on stand-ups. It is a little funny because it feels so, like so far removed from a traditional film as we would understand it at the Globes. But like you also make a good point. There's a lot of work that goes into those things and putting together a stand-up special is a lot harder than it appears. You'd be surprised, by the way, some of the directors are people who guest direct stand-up specials, like celebrities who will jump in and, and direct some comedian stand-up special. You know, it's... You'd be surprised. So I think that's not necessarily a bad thing. I do appreciate them trying to get some more attention, right? Like trying to draw a little, little bit more eyes on the Golden Globes. And, uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully it'll help them out. Uh, one more story this week uh, from the box office. Uh, <laughs> Wow, I thought the last week was the funny. Last episode, the last story was the funniest story of the episode. Paw Patrol scares off Saw X and the creator with a twenty-three million dollar opening. Paw Patrol, the biggest movie of the week, Andy. Don't don't you know about this? <laughs> of course. Oh gosh, this is kind of embarrassing. Uh, this is not not because of how good Paw Patrol is, as much as you couldn't get. That just means you couldn't get people out to other films. And, uh, you know, a kid's movie is always just like, if, if parents are looking for something to do, it doesn't matter what the kid's movie is. If there's a kid's movie we see, they're going to go out and see it. And so that's kind of what's happened here. Uh, Saw came, came in at uh, about $18 million doing which which is good. It's actually done better than the, the previous two Saw movies. Uh, it's off to a good start. It's probably going to maybe re, reinvigorate the brand. Um, but still, to come home, <laughs> to come in under a kid's movie, a family movie, not great. Same with the creator who that just barely made uh fifteen, sixteen million uh over the weekend. And that was an expensive one, eighty million dollar budget. Uh so that's gonna be tough to make back. At least Saw was a cheap movie. I think it was made on an eighteen, twenty million dollar budget. So they're already doing well. Uh but man, it's gonna be tough for the creator and just yeah, it's embarrassing when like 
the kids movie that parents just go to regardless of quality beats everything <sighs> else. Well, yeah, man. So there's a, there's a couple of things here. Number one, uh, I'm going to go work my way backwards up the list because creator came out at the bottom, which is a bummer. Uh, creator another, and we're going to talk about it in a second, but another fine example of high concept sci-fi that American audiences just do not turn out for, right? Like Blade Runner 2049 is my favorite one to point to brilliant film. Nobody came. You know, like, it's just the way it goes. And it's a bummer. And I think Gareth Edwards does good work. And I hope he stays in this space. Like I said, we'll talk about the creator more in a second. Regarding Saw X, man, I don't... First, real quick, uh, that movie probably should have come out closer to Halloween. They always had the tagline, if it's Halloween, it must be Saw, which is silly. But, like, very beginning of October shows a lack of confidence. Because you don't think it'll hold up to other, like, Bloomhouse horrors coming out. Namely, Five Nights at Freddy's. And that's silly. Because Saw X is a completely different beast, right? It's R-rated. It's hardcore. Like you're 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 chasing like torture torture gore and also like camp fans at that point. Five Nights is a, a, a different. But they're not even the same. But regardless, um, as for Paw Patrol, like it's just a laugh, right? It's it's just funny because I did not have Paw Patrol on my radar. I don't know anything about Paw Patrol. Seeing it come out and dominate two other films that I would have been mildly interested in is really funny. Um, and and most importantly, Saw and Paw Patrol are both under $30 million to make and both have blown past what they need. And like, once again, you don't have to have a mega budget to make a mega, bu- mega bucks. Like, boy, I, I, I don't know why we got to talk about Marvel spending $240 million when uh, these movies are, are, you know, putting out part, just a fraction of that. And it's, in fact, it's just easier to succeed when your mar when your budget is just much more uh reasonable. Also Paw yeah. Patrol is just copaganda for for the uh for the record. But, <laughs> That's true. Certified com- uh, oh man, certified copaganda. But the, but the uh it has already they've already greenlit a third one. They're gonna do a third one because this is actually the second uh film in in this series. Uh the first one was also very successful. Uh so there's gonna be a third one in in a couple of years. Also made on a thirty million dollar budget. So yeah, that it's. I don't know why everyone feels you got to spend so much money, and it's. Uh, there's only so many big blockbuster weekends you can have to to make all that back. One more note on this before I move off it, because I I don't I don't know if I'll get the chance to talk about it again. Um, I don't want to go see Saw X, and I've seen the Rotten Tomato scores, and I've seen the hype. I just feel like I'm like too old, dude. Like I have seen a bunch of those movies and I was really into them for a long time. And I was like, dude, the Saw movies are cool. People don't get it. It's bold cinema. And like, I hear this next one's rad and they're going to make Saw 11 and they love the success. And that's very exciting. I just, I don't know, man. I feel like I'm weary this year. 2023 got me down bad and I just don't want to go watch people get tortured for 90 minutes. Like I'm just not into it. (laughs) I don't know. And I know you kind of feel the same way. So I wanted to just talk about it a second before we move off it. In case nobody's like, why didn't they cover saw on the podcast? Like, no, I feel like any other year I would, but like, I don't know, man, I just, I'm not, I'm not feeling the, the spirit. We, we did review the previous saw film, did you which spiral? is called spiral spiral from the book of saw. Or at least Zach reviewed it because my movie cut out like 45 minutes in, like the screen went black and they never oh, yeah. fixed it. Yeah. Yeah. And you refused to go back for another show. Time. <laughs> yeah. I was, I, my time was limited that weekend. And so right. I was not able. So I, I reviewed the first 45 minutes where nothing really right. happened. It was pretty boring. You were um, catching the last screening just before we recorded and you were like, no, I don't have time to watch another one. It's fine. Yeah. I remember uh, thinking like, it was it was a very artistic thing that was happening. And I was like, "Oh, it, the screen's completely black. We're just listening to the audio. Have to right. imagine the tor- torture." And then it's like, "No, the screen just went out, and you're an idiot." Isn't that great? <laughs> like, for for a minute, you were like, "Dude, this is this is amazing." Yeah, like this, this is, is bold this cinema, is Paul Schrader yeah. stuff. Yeah, right. No, not the case. Anyway, we should move on. Uh, I, I'm very excited to talk about this first film. Uh, Andy's going to take the summary on it. A bit complex, but I think he's got it. I got confidence in him. Andy, please uh, take it away. The creator. So this is a big new sci-fi film from director Gareth Edwards, who previously did Star Wars, or Rogue One, a Star Wars story. The troubled, yet very successful production of back in 2018. Or, or so I can't even remember but he hasn't done a film for a while this is his big new uh, sci-fi uh, 
film. It takes place also, in the... F- oh, sorry, not to cut you off, but also worth mentioning, uh, he only did like the first cut of that, and then Disney hired Ron Howard to reshoot like chunks of it and finish it but his name's on it but like i don't i don't i don't know that that was perfectly representative of him but yes that was his last big thing right yeah uh so in the in the creator we uh it takes place in the future where there is this kind of uh cold war between humans and robots robots ha- have been outlawed by the western world because there's this big nuclear uh, attack that they kind of uh, think that the robots are responsible for, uh, but they do exist in in uh, the country of New South Asia, which is kind of a combination of like China, Thailand, present day Vietnam. And it's, you know, new, it's a new country, new lines have been, been drawn. Uh, the West is still waging a, a war on these countries. It's very much a parallel to like Vietnam, the Vietnam War or the wars in uh, Iraq, Afghanistan. There's a lot of parallels uh, to that. That's our, our setting, but um, our protagonist is uh, John David Washington, who plays Joshua. He's a former uh, soldier who's conscripted to find some super AI weapon that's that's being developed, and uh, he doesn't want to go initially, but uh, there's some evidence that maybe his long-lost wife that we thought was dead but actually may not be uh, that she may still be alive. So that kind of motivates him to go to suit up and go back into uh, the fray to find this, whatever this AI is, which turns out to be a child, we know, because the trailer gives away pretty much the whole movie. Um, and then also hunt for his his missing wife. Uh, we meet other interesting characters like Ken Watanabe's uh, character, who who's like uh, what they call simulants, half robot, kind of half hu- human. We also have... Uh, Western military forces. This is played by uh, Allison Janney in, in kind of a strange role. But that's our setup. There's a lot going on. It's a little complicated. Uh, it's a really interesting world. Zach, what do you think? So I think it's you can't talk about the creator without talking about the visuals, which is why I'm glad you kind of opened with that. Um, visually, this movie is stunning. It is genuinely stunning. Gareth Edwards has an eye for science fiction presentation that few others have it is it is like villeneuve-esque in in the look of some of his scale and scope of these cities and giant ships and machines and robots that stuff is amazing unfortunately the script for creator is a little loose and it's a little lacking and for a two-hour 15-minute feature you might end up feeling a little bored in act two or maybe even surprised by where act three goes for better or worse I like the creator actually. I, I I don't love it though, and it's a shame because I like I, it's a movie that I think like almost like Tenet, which is fitting for John David Washington. It's it's like more about vibes than it is about like actually <laughs> paying attention because yeah. the vibe of creator is great. Just look at the trailer if you're watching the live stream. Like just check us, you know, look at what we've got up here. Like it's so cool looking. Like this mix of practical and CGI and and like on the ground handy cam work. Like that stuff works so good, but actual movie the plot in the middle of it's just a little it's a little weak and it bums me out but i'm excited to talk about it i know not everybody feels this way let's get into it what's the best place to get going i want to start with the the positives and let's start with the visuals because the movie does look absolutely stunning from we have these landscapes and they shot a lot on location like they're in uh you know places for stand-ins for like vietnam or south asia uh but there's these incredible massive structures like there's this big military thing called nomad that's like uh it's like the the international space station but even more enormous and it just kind of scans the earth and it has this this big uh scan that you can see all the way um you know covering landscapes and then you have so you have big things like that a, a lot of military style robot stuff and then you have the much smaller details of the what they call the simulants the um human robot hybrids which a lot of times are just like someone's memory like cloned in into this robot and then they have robots that are 100 percent robot but that are still very human behave very human the ai is um in this world used to like you know do policing or or do kind of manual labor jobs so there's a lot in that role so but the visuals are really stunning yeah one of the most interesting things about the the kind of sentient robots that are roaming is you'll either have you, you've got a lot of different models right as, as humanity has kind of built these up it takes place it takes place in 2065 so not 
not too far distant future. And you've got everything from like basic maintenance bots that are like roaming the street and cleaning, you know, whatever street sweeping, like something out of Blade Runner to like soldier or like police officer bots that are like a lot leaner and taller and have these like flat dome heads. You got like server bots, right? That are out gardening or landscaping. And then you've got your simulants, which are like your, your halfway step. You've seen these in the trailer. They're the like normal face, but like with a see-through like back end where, where there would be ears. It's just like a big hole through with like gears whirring in there. Um, and those I think are most interesting because those characters, the simulants in the film, help bridge the gap between humans and robots, which is a very central theme in the creator, right? Like, what is it to have life? What does it mean to have meaning? A very commonly explored sci-fi trope, I think, but one worth looking at, especially uh, in a film as pretty as this one. Uh, the simulants really draw your eye because you end up looking at a lot of characters and wondering, is that a real person or not? And often it doesn't make a difference. That's part of what uh, the creator is trying to kind of get at, believe it or not. It's a... a um, it's it's a message of, of like you know what does it mean to to exist and and is is it the same for a robot as it is for a human do androids dream of electric sheep and having these characters that basically functionally are completely human and then just have this kind of short part cgi'd out in the back helps to bridge that gap between like what is mechanical and what isn't you get some characters who you're not sure you get some characters who like when they turn their head you're like surprised um, you you can get multiples, right? Because you've got only so many models of simulants, so you might see two of the same one. Like that stuff is really neat, and also like it's assisted by uh, John David Washington's character uh, being an amputee. He's missing an arm and a leg, and his leg is fully robotic, and his arm is too. But you can only tell like the rest of the arm is like flesh, almost like the Terminator, right? Like it's like wrapped in flesh and skin or whatever. Like prosthetic, so, but yeah. So yeah, like, so for most of the film, like it's just John David Washington shooting his arm and they just did like a little touch up with some CGI to go back and cover like the top half of his shoulder, like comes off looking great. feels very practical, feels very grounded. All of that's super effective. Like that's likely the best, the best parts of the film, I think. Right. I think another highlight are the uh, action scenes. We have a lot of, uh, you know, we have shootouts between like robots versus robots, robots versus humans, humans versus humans. Uh, we get some futuristic cars. We have a kind of big battle, uh, like just battle tanks or like the, the one person has kind of a mech suit that has missiles on it. So you have some of this futuristic uh, battle scenes as well. At one point, there's kind of this giant land uh tank thing it's like the size of a building big big kind of battle with that so the action scenes i think are also really good there's a, a little bit sometimes they go on a little bit too long but that part is is really well produced it's true and and edwards uses landscape really well like to tell stories visually out on the battlefield which is neat there's this great sequence towards the end where he's got this like he's got all these rebels holding out on this kind of like island fortress and he's got this really long narrow wooden bridge like running to the city where like all the police are coming in to attack them and they shoot all this smoke out and you've got all this smoke blowing over this like wood it looks like something out of a kurosawa movie like it's so thoughtful i think where the creator starts to suffer believe it or not where it's action and landscape and visuals are fantastic is it's things like verbal exposition which it suffers a lot of uh, a lot of like big turn moments in the creator where like there will be a big plot change or you'll discover a piece of information are, are like literally just told from one character. Or they just say it and it feels so flat because so much of the movie is visual. Like you learn about the world and how robots interact in it and how simulants are there um, through action and, and through expression, like visually of what characters are doing. So when Joshua like finds out this key piece of information about, where his wife maybe, or even if she's still alive, when that's just kind of like told to him flatly, and then he like hops in a car and drives to the next scene, it feels really weak, and it's a shame because it doesn't always do that. But like, it just feels like a lot of its core plot points like are just just told flat out in dialogue, and it's like, ooh, ah, I mi I miss that bold cinema. I miss that Denis Villeneuve like Ryan Gosling thinking he might be a replicant human hybrid like thing in a dream sequence where like there's no dialogue at all and you just get all of it through tone. Um, it, it's lacking a little here and I think Edwards can get it. He just, I don't know. I think he needs a little bit more confidence in 
uh, what's in the script. Because he helped write, he write it. He wrote it with Chris, uh, I don't remember his name. Uh, I'll check it out. On Chris Weitz. Chris Weitz, yes. Right, and that's where my criticisms start is with our, our plot and characters, which are a major part of mo- of movie of any movie. But luckily, all, all, all the kind of visual elements work do a lot of the heavy lifting to keep you from kind of rolling your eyes. Um, but yeah, our characters are, again, a little weak, a little one-dimensional. Um, John David Washington is the weary sol- soldier. Uh, his wife is essentially fridged. Uh, meaning that his his significant other is you know hurt and that motivates him kind of to to action. Uh, his wife is named Maya, played by the great Gemma Chan, who Gemma I had no Chan. idea was in this. I had no idea she was in this movie. Uh, Me too. She's in a couple. She's in a couple of Marvel movies. Uh, she's in uh, Crazy Rich Asians. Love Gemma uh, Chan. Fabulous. Fab- fabulous. I had no idea if she was in this, and I've seen this trailer like five or six times in the in the theater like i don't know how yeah. i like didn't that, like she's not very well advertised in this um her role is kind of small and is largely seen in in flashbacks uh she doesn't get enough of screen time and then we also have our uh, kind of young uh kind of you know our super weapon slash kind of a messianic uh, figure uh, called alfie's played by a young girl named madeline una voiles uh, again, it's a sweet kid who, you know, is like, oh, this is the great weapon, that the great destructor. They don't do a good job of saying, like, really what she can do. She appears to kind of have remote powers, which really just kind of turn stuff off. But that needed to be way more interesting. She needed to, I don't know, be a hyper intelligence that could, you know, out outthink and outdo humans and ro- something. But it's it's really one-dimensional. It's not very... Uh, interesting uh, to watch. And then we're hit with a number of like tropes and kind of just sci-fi tropes. You, you, again, you you got the, the weary soldier, the dead wife, the, uh, the messianic child that will save us all uh, the kind of uh, like avatar level, angry military personnel. So it's a lot of kind of paint by number stuff. Yeah. And like, I don't, I don't mean to, agree that it's paint by numbers but like in this odd way as as you watch it you start to realize that like a lot of a lot of the more interesting elements of the creator start to just fall into place of where you think it'll go in your head and then it satisfyingly arrives there um for most of this movie i actually thought it was a lot like apocalypse now or heart of darkness right it's 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 joshua's uh journey with alfie to find this kind of uh, uh I don't know this this idea of this kind of like savior of of robot kind, right? That may may be able to turn the tide and change things forever. They're like deep in the jungle, right? They're traveling from like these cities to cities, and they're evading danger and 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 police and other insurgents and and like all, all of this like is just slowly getting worn down, and, and all of it in this like beautiful like landscape, like this 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 wonderful kind of new Asia that that that's been built here on screen for us to enjoy. Like, that's all really great. I was so taken aback by where Act 3 goes. And that doesn't normally happen <laughs> in these movies. Yeah. And I, I, like, and maybe that's a really satisfying surprise. But when you watch Creator, uh, I would love to chat with you, the listener, about what you think. Because I, we don't do spoilers here on this show. Um, but I, I was just, I couldn't, like, I, I kept thinking, I was like, well, this isn't, this isn't going where I think it's going. Um and for better or worse, it does. And I think in that way, I think Creator is trying to satisfy two masters. It, honestly, if I didn't know any better, I'd say there's like a four-hour cut of Creator out there. And the studio was like, absolutely not. You have to cut this down. <laughs> and so they just tried to fill in a lot of gaps with like ADR and dialogue. And that's why you end up with these kind of really quick scenes where like somebody will just tell Joshua what to do next and he just goes and does it. And I told Christine when I got home from watching it, I was like, it reminds me of like, a six-year-old telling you a story and they just keep saying and then. <laughs> like so 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 he runs up to this and then he gets on the shuttle and then he goes to the space station and then he fights the robots and then and i'm just like oh my god like it just turns into this like breakneck run to the end that's really unsatisfying like for a movie that is slow admittedly in its first you know hour 45 but is thoughtful and i i figured you know there's this is kind of the intended experience so that then's 
surprisingly jarring. Yeah, I agree. And and Zach and I have not talked about this yet, so but I felt the same way. Act three is so rushed. And the first two acts have good pacing, I think, and uh, really take their time. And you spend most of your time in like New South Asia. Um, and then in you hit Act three and you go to like three different locations, vastly different locations out of nowhere. And it's like speed running at the end. And, it, and it's like you, you probably should have cut like one of these sequences and just had had this wrap up a lot lot cleaner it just um yeah it, it, it's like you needed a few more drafts at the script to really kind of tighten it up but yeah man it's really jarring after two acts of kind of more slower paced thoughtful filmmaking and then all of a sudden it's just like bam 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 yeah that being said like i think somebody going through with a red pen is a soft critique of an otherwise pretty good film. And there's a lot in creator that works. It really is like, it is not a bad feature by any means. I think it's going to have its audience. Like, I think there are going to be sci-fi fans that are really dedicated to it in part because the world is just so rich. Like I, I can't get over how good the world is in the creator. The world building is excellent. The creator, uh, but it's just kind of actual plot. It's just a little loose, a little lacking. And that's again a simple critique. That's a simple criticism for an otherwise a movie that works so well. There are so many directors who would flub this whole thing start to finish. Gareth Edwards rolls out a Rogue One, takes the L, right? Ron Howard finishes that movie for him, and he puts this together, and it is not a bad feature. The problem is, I know it's difficult to get high concept sci fi greenlit, right? Vill Villeneuve infamously said after Blade Runner 2049 was a bomb, he was never making one of these again. And then Warner Brothers told him they'd give him Dune. And here we are, which is amazing. <laughs> like, but I mean, he, even he was like right on the edge of like, I'm out. Like, I, we, I, I can't do these movies, you know? Like, there's. There's too much that goes into it. You pour too much in. And I think Edwards maybe just poured in a little too much. And that's so okay. That's so all right. Like, I think the creator is really cool. I'm excited to see what he does next, I think. What, how about you, Andy? Yeah, no, that's that's kind of how I feel ab about it. Like, there, he's definitely has a great eye for visual effects and for world building. The world building in this is is really good. Like I said, there's a lot of parallels and criticisms of basically the wars in Vietnam, uh, Iraq, and Afghanistan, and of generally of Western warfare in in general. It's very on on the nose about that. Uh, it had so much promise. I, th I think uh, several more drafts of the script and they could have had something really special. Yeah. Like it reminds me of like Spielberg taking a swing at like artificial intelligence or even like a, a Neil Blomkamp film, right? Like very district nine, very like on the ground, grimy, grungy robot stuff. Like that I think is, I don't know. I think it's neat. It's, it's, it's got something to it in a time when we're just constantly surrounded by technology. That being said, Andy, would you recommend the creator? I would actually. It, it's really it's grown on me a little bit. Uh, it definitely has some issues in plot and character, but I think that's really made up by really stunning visuals and world building. And uh, again, it's it's got hints of Blade Runner, of Dune, of uh, Apocalypse Now. Like you said, it it's really uh, it's kind of a visual feast, and uh, I enjoyed it a lot more than I I thought it. I would. It's not perfect, and if you're a little skeptical, I, I would say uh, save it for streaming. But I think it's worth checking out. I'm in the same boat. I think it's not a bad time. Uh, I would say, and this is a bit of a disappointment, but hear me out. The visuals are great. They're really fantastic. You do not need to spend money on a premium screen to go see this. I blew the extra cash and went and saw it on like a Dolby screen. Not worth it. Like the 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 action is not that earth shattering that you will be whisked away to a land far away in your experience. Like it's definitely just an expensive screen for this one. Uh, that being said, like it's a really pretty film. I think it's really cool. I don't know what streaming service it'll be coming to, but when it comes out, you should go check it out there. Uh, not a bad time. And if you feel differently, by the way, like, please let us know. Like, good God, we're not we're not the purveyors of what works in cinema. Like, if you think the third act of creator is rock solid, like, I'd love to have that conversation. Because unfortunately, right now, I don't know anybody else that's seen this movie other than Nandy and I, who are, you know, pretty aligned on how we feel about it. So keep me posted and uh, write into mail at OscarFilmReview.com to keep up with, uh, you know, us and, and, and what you think of the creator. That being said, we should talk about our next segment. Very excited to talk about this. It's been a minute, but we're going to give you the meat and potatoes. Andy, what do we call this? It's time for the death of cinema. 
In fact, this actually might be the life of cinema this week. The end of the writer strike. After nearly f five months, I think, uh, a deal was finally reached and agreed to between the studios and the Writers Guild. The actors are still on strike, but they're in talks, and that's probably going to be coming to an end uh, fairly soon. Uh, there's a lot of details, and we're going to try not to get caught in the weeds too much, but uh, kind of the overview is that there were big um, concessions made in terms of AI, of staffing minimum, of... Uh, just getting paid more for a lot of the work and also things like residuals for streaming. So that's uh, were three of the really big wins. And we're going to get into that a little bit more. Zach, what are your initial thoughts? So this is a historic thing and it may not feel historic because it's immediate and we get a lot of news and it's been going for a while. But unions don't get a lot of big W's in this country right now. We're getting they're getting more, I should say, over time. But uh, for the writers to stick it out for five long arduous hot summer months and pick it every day until they got what they wanted is incredible the amptp the american uh, association of motion picture theater providers whatever the five big studios they weren't budging like they very early came to the writers and said here's our deal it's the best we got and the writers said that's not even close to good enough and for months anytime they met same song and dance even as as far as about a month ago when the five big CEOs all came to the meeting and said, it's not getting any better. They literally had their leadership try to pitch them and say, this is the best deal you're getting. And the writers all stuck it out and said, no, we're not doing it. We know we can do better. This system's outdated. Nielsen ratings are a silly way to try to track how many views Netflix is getting. People are watching Suits over there all the time and nobody on that show is getting any residuals. Something's got to change. And it did. It, it has. It's changed. Thing, things have happened. Things have moved forward. Now SAG is working their way towards a deal. I just saw some news that uh, uh, Disney's VFX uh, artists are voting to unionize, so you're probably going to hear more from us next week about that. Uh, this is a big deal. It's a big deal for everybody. It's good for the film goers, right? It's good for us who watch movies. It's good for people who make movies. I, like I see it as an all-around win. I, I have trouble seeing this as a bad thing. What are, what are some of these terms, Andy? Like What exactly is it they won? So we're going to get into the weeds here a little bit. This is just a three-year contract, um, which they'll revisit in uh, 2025, 2026. Uh, one of the big increases are increase in minimums for writers, uh, both TV and film. And this is part of what's complicated is that there's so many different types of writing jobs. Um, increases to health and pension uh, contributions and for writing teams. Uh, I wanted to get into some of the, these um, increases. Uh, so, for instance, if you write a screenplay, some of the minimums for for getting buying your screenplay is increased by 200%. And what that means in real numbers is uh, a lot of times you can, an initial draft can be bought for between forty and 80000 depending on the certain level of script. So all those numbers have doubled. So that's uh, a huge, huge bonus for that um other things with just accelerated payments so writers will be paid sooner for their work instead of having to wait so long and one of the big things is uh streaming residuals and one of the ways that uh that's going to change is that uh for instance if a streaming film or show is made on a 30 million dollar budget or more minimum initial compensation is now a hundred thousand dollars when which is a 20 percent increase from before um, there's also just combined residuals for foreign markets. And a, a big thing that th the studios are going to be forced to uh, be transparent with the the numbers of, of who's actually watching this. That will not be shared with the public. It, it will only be shared with the Writers Guild under NDA. I'm sure that I'm sure those will get leaked at some point. Um, but that's that part is a huge deal. Um, have making the the studios show what the stream numbers really are, and you know, and then forcing pay based on on that viewership based streaming bonuses that is what it's called. Yeah, like I mentioned earlier, the way this has been working up till now is uh, Nielsen, the company that was responsible for tracking ads on basically like the four major television networks seventy years ago. Uh, has functionally been adapted and brought up over time to accommodate for not only broadcast television, but cable television, satellite, 
Uh, they they cover radio, and since the last you know decade that we've been really getting into streaming, they've been trying to handle that too, and that has not been going great. It's been okay, but it hasn't been enough, especially to cover the smaller people like the writers who are usually pushed to the back, right? Like uh, movie the- movie companies think of okay, who do we need to put our who do we need to 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 put our money into here? And it's going to be your star power, and it's going to be your marketing, right? And your CGI, my God, the CGI, the CGI is the biggest thing ever. Writers are consistently getting pushed to the back, and that doesn't work because you can look at a lot of these productions and realize that, hey, these don't really work without writers. They're functionally as important as your actors. You have to have a voice for these people to say things into the camera with, um, and that comes from your writers. So there's really not a lot around it. Uh, One of the things I did think was interesting in here was their uh, mention of using AI because I know that was a bit of a thing. Andy, did you talk about that at all? I didn't hear you mention it, but I want to make sure I don't. Yeah. Not yet. I want, wanted you to talk about the pay increases before we got into that. Uh, well, tell us about pay increases because I, uh, I I wish I was as red well, on that as I am on the AI bit. Well, that's kind of what we just went over. Just increase in, in minimums for a lot of it. Increases right. Over 200% for screenplays. Yeah. Yeah. It, just a lot of increases uh, in general and a pretty sizable amount, like sometimes 30 to 50%. So that's a big win. As far as AI goes, a, a lot of crucial things, and I'm going to read this uh, word for word. AI can't write or rewrite literary, literary material, and AI-generated material will not be considered source material under the MBA, meaning the AI-generated material can't be used to undermine a writer's credit or separated rights. So the studios can't use AI on a script and then say, well, the writer didn't write it, AI wrote it, so we don't have to pay you. So that's that's a huge win um, a writer can choose to use AI while performing writing services if the company consents and provided that writer follows ethical company policies. The company can't require the writer to use AI software when performing writing services. So the company can't say, you got to use chat GPT to write this and then pay you less because you use that. Um, yeah. The company Companies have to disclose whether a writer is given material that was written by AI. Um WGA reserves the right to assert the exploitation of writer's material to train AI. So you can't, you know, take all of Stephen King's scripts or whatever and use it to feed uh, an AI, something like that. The AI not being able to write or rewrite literary material and count as original works is pretty huge. So those are kind of the four big bullet points. Yeah, and I had heard one of the big concerns, like, from writers on the ground in in LA. They said that really for AI, what they're concerned about is studios will use AI to generate basically a source script and then have a writer edit it. That's the deal. Like, oh, we'll just take this take this script that we had ChatGPT kick out and just massage it into a movie and we'll pay you, you know, a quarter of what we would have paid. And we're only hiring one of you and not three of you. Like that's, which like obviously is a big concern, right? Like also, yeah, not being able to import a writer's material to just crank out more like them. I was listening to, God, who was it? Sarah Silverman was complaining just the other day. She was like, somebody uploaded my audio book and a bunch of my stand-up specials and you can make me say whatever you want on the internet. It's disgusting and horrible. I was like, yeah, that kind of is disgusting and horrible, Sarah Silverman. You're right. So, I mean, overall, a good thing. Uh, I, I think overall, this is all good stuff. I... Hope hope SAG after gets the, the the next best thing, and then I hope that Disney's VFX union, God willing, if that turns into a big story, I hope they get what they're looking for because Lord knows they need it. Overall, I think like all good things. I think it's incredible they got what they were looking for and they reached the finish line. Five months of no work, going out and picketing—that is insane. I couldn't do it. I I don't know how they I don't know how they had the stamina. I don't know the fortitude. I don't know how they could afford rent. I guess they couldn't afford. You know rent. what? One of the things that I heard early on was, uh, you know, being being a, a paid writer is a, it's a shaky gig as it is, and so most of those people they're used to sometimes not having work, so they were ready to be in the trenches because they've already been in in the the trenches, and that's not something I think the uh, AMTP was ready for. Yeah, I think you're right. Overall, good things. Uh, like I said, keep it here on Oscar for more from the strikes. Uh, if something changes with SAG. I think they're meeting like tomorrow. You'll hear about it when we do the show next week. And, uh, you know, we'll follow up with you. This stuff's important. All right. It's no joke. It's a big deal. And speaking of big deals, uh, we got one more movie to talk about this week on the podcast. I'm going to be taking the summary on this one and I'm excited to get into it. Uh, this film came out in 2022 uh, from director Charlotte Wells, who's not done really anything large. I mean, small, small indie film, micro budget. 
Uh, it's on Hulu. We missed it when it came out, but it was a t- it caught a ton of buzz last year, uh, late when it came out. So I'm excited to talk about it. The movie is After Sun. So After Sun is the story of Sophie and Callum, uh, a a daughter and father who are on vacation, or at least in this kind of flashback. Uh, it turns out the whole movie is. Uh, set in the present and Sophie adult Sophie is reflecting on her life Uh, this vacation she took with her father Callum played brilliantly by Paul I totally Paul Mescal god I don't know where I was going with that yes Paul Mescal king of indie uh, cinema right now yeah he's a big deal glad he got gladiator 2 off this movie so yeah uh, he's he's no joke he's he's coming out with foe Saoirse Ronan's in that that's gonna be out soon uh Frankie Corio plays Sophie young Sophie uh, the two of them, she's about, what, nine, ten in this movie. Uh, the two of them go to Turkey. Mm-hmm. They're both from Scotland. They have cute accents. And they're just staying in a hotel room, and they're enjoying like a week away, right? Down by the pool, getting some sun, maybe hanging out with some of the older people, like the, the older kids at the uh, at the resort, um, and just kind of enjoying the time away. And and that's 95% of After Sun, believe it or not. Like, uh, that is nearly all of the film it's it's stunning how subtle it is because it's a movie about the things that aren't said it's a movie about the things you don't see and that sounds like a challenging thing to understand and it is so uh, we don't do spoilers on this show but before i ask andy what he thinks and we start to get into it i I do want to say this disclaimer if you are curious about after sun um i don't know if there's anything andy and i can say to uh say like how you what you what you might want to experience with it so maybe you should go watch it and 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 come back (laughs) like i said we're not spoiling anything but it's kind of i think it's kind of a special movie and it's it's surprisingly intimate and it's surprisingly sincere so with that uh i just want to throw that on the front andy what did you think of after sun so i was really uh suspect going into this uh or skeptical rather uh Tons of buzz last year. Tons of Oscar buzz. Uh, Paul Mescal was nominated for for best lead actor for this movie, um, and I was strangely turned off by all of that buzz because you hear you hear that about every Oscar worthy film around Oscar season in the in the fall. Everything is like the greatest thing with the greatest performance, and it's gonna win all the Oscars. And a lot of times. That's not true at all. A lot of times it's just kind of a chore. I, I've even heard that about films coming out this year. About, you know, a month ago they were hot. Now they're like, oh, people are like, well, the, what, what's kind of the big deal? And After Sun was one of those movies I just was not really excited to see. It kind of looked like a bit of a chore. Um, and I was really blown away for it in, in a way I completely didn't expect. It reminded me a lot of like The Lost Daughter, which is not a film I particularly enjoyed. And I thought it would be a little bit like that. But it really is something different. It's a very, on the surface, simple coming-of-age ta- tale of young Sophie remembering the, this vacation with with her her father. But we learn a lot about both people and their situation along the way and flashes into adult Sophie's life, which really tells so much. And this is really what I, bold cinema is is about because so much of the emotion and meaning of the film is told visually through a very simple story. Like I said, it's a girl and her father on vacation in Tur- Turkey for a week. It's not, and it avoids a lot of pitfalls. It doesn't have like big speeches, big monologues, you know, big ugly cry moment or these kinds of things you kind of expect from, from movies like this. It, it's so profound and skips a lot, a lot of kind of Oscar Beatty stereotypes. Yeah. There's about, I'm going to say maybe like, maybe like eight minutes of footage in like this 90 minute movie. It's quick that if you were to cut it out, like with a, with a razor and just play the movie back, you'd have no idea there's like subtext. And that's what this movie is about. It's subtext. It's, it's about Sophie reflecting on her life and trying to understand the man that was her father based on what she saw and kind of knew of him at a young age, because it, it becomes obvious as as you're watching after Sun that like something is wrong with Callum. Something is not right with him. But you can't figure it out. And 
you, the audience member, uh, an adult, are very much trying to seek that answer, right? He's almost like your protagonist. He's your dad. He's the one other person at this resort that, that, that they know. They, they're there with nobody else. They have no family friends. It is just the two of them. So naturally, you want to get to understand them. And you start to find out over the course of the picture that, okay, he, him and his mother divorced. He doesn't live in Scotland. He's working on a project at home in London, I think is where he is. He has a broken wrist, which already is, you're thinking in your head, okay, what happened there? Like, you want to know the story. And After Sun is kind of this brilliant exercise in not really giving you the answer, giving you breadcrumbs and saying, hey, you kind of draw your own conclusions to what you think this might be. And then before you know, whisking you back to Sophie in modern time and seeing that she is struggling with the exact same questions you are struggling with. And in that way, After Sun forges a connection between its character and its audience that like very few films do. Very few films from a first first time feature director, Charlotte Wells, which is incredible, in 90 minutes on no money. Like it's it's bananas how well this is put together. I don't even know how they storyboarded certain parts of it. We were talking about when we were watching. I was like, they, 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 I don't even know how, they, how it came together in post. Like I, it's yeah. it's baffling. It's lightning in a bottle. Like I, I, I don't know how they did it. Yeah, it doesn't feel acted most of the time. It, it, it it's like you're watching re- real people. It feels just so kind of calm and natural. Um, plot wise, we, we know we we been we get small insights into Callum's life. Um, he's doing his best uh, to be a good father in this weekend. You know, he's paid for this. Uh, you know, this weekend or this week long trip at in uh, a resort in Turkey. Um, he, he constant, he's always around Sophie. He's making sure she's got, uh, you know, sunblock on that's that kind of thing. He's like, he's a really good father on the surface, but then we also kind of learn some, a lot about him that's under the the surface that he's, he doesn't have a very good job or doesn't have a stable job. doesn't really have a lot of money. He's not around a lot. Uh, he seems to kind of drink a lot. He tells his daughter not to smoke, but he smokes, you know, in kind of private. Um, but he is doing his best, and he is, again, he's on this great vacation. He's at Sophie's side constantly. He's not just, like, being neglectful. He wants to make sure that she has not only a good time, but that he is there with her. But we know that things aren't perfect uh, kind of underneath uh, the surface. And Sophie... Uh, 11-year-old Sophie doesn't really see that at the moment, but as we see glimpses into adult Sophie and her kind of looking back, which is another brilliant thing about this film, is that it's really a memory. So everything we see may or may not have really happened. Yeah, and alternatively, like, Sophie is not one note either. Like, while her father has kind of more going on than meets the eye, like, so does she. Uh, Callum encourages her to spend time with some of the younger girls at the resort. Oh, good. Why don't you go play in the pool with those girls? She's like, no, those are babies. Like, I, I don't want to spend time with them. She wants to hang out with the older kids, right, who are, like, playing pool or or uh, kissing in the bathroom, right? Like, and and she she wants to get older and grow up. And, and in that way, I think she wants to, you know, try to have real, real human connections, which is part of the reason like her and her dad get along fine. But ultimately, like, there's a bit of a a struggle sometimes, right? Because he thinks that she's maybe a little younger than she is, because that's the last time he saw her when he's been away because mom are divorced. Um, Maybe she just doesn't feel like she gets him. Um, And then that like is juxtaposed really really brilliantly again with like just these very very brief almost just like simply thematic flashes to the future they're hardly even visual um experimental almost like when you see a sophie looking back and trying to think oh hold on let me try to revisit this space um it's really great like it 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 makes an 11 year old girl like a surprisingly interesting character uh looking at the imdb trivia it's a charlotte wells auditioned over 800 girls for the lead role of sophie before settling on frankie Corio. so it's well deserved yeah like they they worked at it and also i should say nearly the whole film shot on location which is amazing tons of outdoor work tons of sunlight lots of natural light and what's so what's so so damn interesting about the way it's shot is there's a ton of shots they just linger for really long periods of time. Just let you think, right? Let's let you, let you stew on what you're seeing. Let you just kind of draw on the visuals. Sometimes even Sophie, which most of the film is told from her point of view, will kind of drift off in bed after a long day at the resort. And the camera will just kind of pan slowly over to Callum out on the balcony smoking a cigarette or I don't know. I, I don't even really know what he's doing. And it's weird. It's this moment where you step out of like your 
you step out of where we're supposed to be because for the most of the film we're following her and every once in a while you just kind of get this peek at who this guy is or maybe who she thinks he was right like that's part of the interpretation of it um makes it like again I, I don't know how they i don't know how they shot it but boy like it comes off just feeling so natural and human like it's it's really stellar yeah really great uh cinematography there there's a, an amazing shot where you can see Sophie in the reflection of the TV that, which is turned off, but also in the mirror that's in, in the, their hotel room, these kinds of shot, the experimental stuff that you kind of see in uh, adult Sophie's timeline. Um, it's just an incredible use of memory without explicitly being like a hazy flashback, you know, because they have recorded footage, you know, because uh, Callum seems to be really interested in vi uh, videotape recording. And this takes place in the 90s. I don't think we mentioned that. Uh, so he's got an old kind of VHS re recorder and he's recording some some things. So we have live footage of things that did happen, but then there's a lot of like Sophie filling in the gaps uh, for better or for worse. And it seems like everything is always positive and that's kind of how memory is. You kind of only remember the, the good things. And so it kind of calls into question some of the things that, that happened, did they happen exactly how she remembers? Did they happen better? Did they happen worse? We don't really know, and there's no way to tell, but it's a fascinating look at how memory affects our emotions. I think the best kind of art is the kind of stuff you can revisit months or, or even years later and come away feeling like totally different than you did the first time. And part of what makes After Sun, I think, so interesting is that's exactly what it's kind of trying to be. It's interpretive, right? Based on your experiences with your parents and your experiences with how you read people. And you may read Paul Mescal as totally differently motivated uh, than, than somebody else. Andy and I actually got together to watch this on, uh, we watched uh, Paramount with Showtime. That's where we saw it. Yeah, they've got it. Um, I think any Showtime pack, will just, if you get Showtime on Hulu, I think they'll have After Sun on there. They got to deal with A24. But uh, about halfway through, I stopped to go to the bathroom and I said, hey, here's what I think is going on. And he was like, oh no, I think it's this. Two totally different reads on the same character, like crazy, you know? Um, I, I think it's fascinating, like how simple After Sun is and just how effective it is. It is, again, lightning in a bottle. I Not only do I think it's an incredible work by Charlotte Wells, I don't know if she could do it again. I'm going to be honest. Like, it's, <laughs> yeah. there's something really special here. Like, it's really unique. Um, I, so I'm really glad we got to talk about it. Any other thoughts, Andy, for recommendations? Yeah, I, I just wanted to mention how... Um one of the things that, that it sets up a lot of things that you think are going to kind of happen or that uh, would happen in a kind of coming of age film. And there is this constant sense of danger, which never really comes to fruition. I think a large part because us uh, as if you watch it as an adult, you know about all, all the dangers of, of people and strangers. Uh, you know, Sophie runs in, she kind of hangs out with these older kids that are like 15, 16 that are like a little bit too old be hanging out with her uh there there's a boy that likes her there's a they do this sequence of kind of uh some self-defense between her and her father and like you were kind of waiting for really bad things to happen because as an adult you you're aware of these and child sophie is is not but the movie doesn't make the mistake of of just giving us a sad something or other to uh you know basis some sort you know it doesn't throw in a, a tragedy which a lesser movie would have done but it has that that fear of that you know as an adult uh, is always there and I, I just thought that was a fascinating story element that we again all these kind of dangers or possible dangers are hinted at but never really come to fruition yeah, to to underline the vulnerability of like a good coming of age story without exploiting it. It's a little like how I felt. Um, it reminds me of like eighth grade um, or even something like yeah. Thoroughbreds, like in a much more cynical fashion, like Thoroughbreds. But Thoroughbreds is rad. Y'all should go watch Thoroughbreds. But um, yeah, overall, I think it's a special feature and I'm glad we watched it. Andy, would you recommend After Sun? Absolutely. Uh, I've been... I've been able to think of nothing else but this movie the last couple of days. It's really stuck with me. Uh, really fascinating artistic film. Again, examining the uh, 
a fond memory of a vacation with this girl's father and kind of what that means 10, 20 years afterwards. And, uh, you know, what was the man she remembered really the man he was? Was he more? Was was he less? Um, just told in a really brilliant way. There's so many people who would have fumbled this. A studio would have thrown in some really, really unnecessary elements, but uh, highly recommend. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. After Sun's super special. You should totally go see it. Uh, like I said at the top, uh, I don't want the, our review to dissuade you. Uh, if you're at all more interested uh, since we started talking about it, please go check it out. I don't think you'll be disappointed. If you're less interest- interested, uh, maybe give it a chance anyway because I maybe we, maybe we did you a disservice. It's a difficult film to talk about because you don't want to – I, I don't know. You, you don't. You don't want to project what you think is going on into how other people will experience it. But keep an open mind and go in just kind of thinking of these two on vacation and kind of see where you end up. Because I've, I mean, just hopping on the internet and and seeing what other people like have pieced together is fascinating. And and seeing what people saw as oh, well, I, I I think this and we'll know that this happens. I'm like, oh, and that's kind of that's kind of true. Like it it makes this film interpretive in a way that like so many movies aren't nowadays and that makes after sun a really special feature great work from charlotte wells cannot wait to see paul mescal again uh rock solid all around and that's our show god that's our show for the week off script episode uh, what 228 good lord through these things uh what are we watching next week so we're going to be doing a streaming only weekend it's not a no, there's not a lot of big releases. Uh, we're going to be taking a look at 2014's It Follows, which was kind of an indie horror hit from that year starring uh, Michael Mon- Monroe uh, about a curse that follows people around after doing certain things. One of my favorite mo- kind of modern horror movies, almost 10 years old now, I can't believe it. Um, Zach has never seen this, and that's part of the reason we're watching it, and I, and I yes. can always watch this movie. And it's a short, it's like 90 minutes, it's quick, it's good. It's scary. So we're going to be taking a look at that. And also a look at Hulu's No One Will Save You, which is a straight-to-streaming uh, small horror film starring uh, Booksmart's Caitlin Deaver, which we've heard a lot about. It's gotten attention from Guillermo del Toro and Stephen King. They've tweeted about it. Um, so we're going to check that out, see what that's all about. That's available now on Twitter. And also just some FYI releases. Uh, the Exorcist Believer, Belieber as I like to call it, um, comes out this uh, Friday, October 6th, uh, directed by David Gordon Green, a direct follow-up to the original Exorcist. Um, uh, we just could not get into this. It, it looks really, really bad. What, Double Trouble? Yeah, not not into that? No, yeah. not into it. Uh, yeah, I, I'm excited to watch It Follows. I've always heard good things. I've seen memes. I just never got around to it. I'm also excited to watch uh, No One Will Save You just because of the buzz. Good Lord. Like, we do a movie podcast and we didn't see this thing coming. So anytime something comes out and eight directors hop on Twitter and go, oh, my God, this movie's rad, we totally want to check it out. But most importantly, I'm excited to watch these movies because it's spook season, right? It's Halloween, baby, or at least it's coming up on it. Two scary movies back to back. Perfect. It's my, it's my kind of podcast. It's going to be great. If you want to catch that episode, episode 229, or any previous episodes we've done, you can find us on socials, right? We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. We're on YouTube. We're posting full reviews. Insane things going on in the YouTube channel. Got to go check out the YouTube channel. Please go check us out. Subscribe to us if you can. We're on all usual podcast outlets, right? iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartMedia. You might even be listening to us from there right now. Also, not Google Play, YouTube podcast, because they're change this stuff around but we'll, we'll be on it and we'll be there when it changes so don't you worry about us uh, you can check out our website offscriptfilmreview.com and you can a- email us any correspondence at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com you can also leave a rating and review believe it or not big help like the video comment ring the bell all that good stuff whatever you can do to help your boys we really appreciate it over here on offscript film review from all of us at offscript the home of bold cinema i'm zach lewis and i'm dr draper thanks for watching